I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. All right. Hey, Jordan. How's it going? It's going great. It's going great. Uh, It's a hot summer day. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania right now, visiting a friend. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm I'm in uh, I'm at my parents' place in suburban Massachusetts, or as you've called it, the uh, the Regression Olympics. <laughs> going going back to our parents' place, the games of the Regression Olympiad. But yeah, it's been it's been good being here, and things have been been going really well overall. I've yeah, we have a lot to get caught up on. It's been. I was checking. It's been a little over two months since we've last recorded a podcast, and we haven't actually had much in the way of in-depth, yeah, you know, offline conversations in that time. Yeah, we were traveling, and I was traveling. You couldn't so afford the bill for a little while. I couldn't. I couldn't afford <laughs> your zero dollar an hour rates for. You know, you get what you pay for. So it's. Uh, but you got a summer job. You mowed some lawns, and you decided <laughs> right. to invest those proceeds wisely. <laughs> for another not therapy session yeah so yeah it seems my my rough sense is that a lot has taken place since we last talked you've uh you had a trip uh out of the city you had some nature time i think you did some psychedelics you visited your parents and involuted back to the age of an embryo (laughs) and subsequently undergone a stepwise redevelopment process to arrive back at your ripe adult age i I, i'll go with ripe 46 i feel i feel increasingly ripe oh not even ripe yet yeah no there there has there has been a lot and and i do honestly have somewhat of a feeling of being reborn in in recent months there's been yeah i i i would say I have a more durable, deep sense of contentment and peace and just being okay than I've ever had before in my life. Wow. Fantastic. And it's, it's all not due to you because this was a good controlled experiment, basically two months of not, not therapy and everything gets better. Apparently it's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where should we begin with all that? I'm, I want to hear well, how, the, how it happened. Yeah. So where to begin? It's a good question. Well, I, I was looking at the last one we recorded, which was which was mid-June. We're now sort of mid-late August. And that was there had been some changes with Clara at that point. She had reunited with Rob, her right. pre-existing lover. Yeah. Sounds like a a, a pathological condition. <laughs> she has a pre-existing lover, but but she does. And you know, when her and I at the peak of the pandemic well i think we're still in the peak but when quarantine shelter and place orders were fully in effect she wasn't seeing him it it was effectively an exclusive relationship and when that opened up that was somewhat difficult when she started seeing him again but but yeah i guess the overall sort of progression of things with her was she started seeing Rob again. It provoked a lot of insecurity, but that passed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And a general trend in my relationship with her over these months that you've certainly been witness to is often there'll be some sort of change in the relationship coming from her end that 
you know, a big one being she's going to be seeing Rob again, or she doesn't have as much time consequently to give to me. And my initial reaction is this very strong fear-based response, this almost panic response of, oh, this is not okay. This is a huge problem. You know, this isn't going to work. And then when I sit with it for a relatively short amount of time, often within a few hours, within a day or two, I realize, oh, it's it's fine. This this isn't a problem. Or at worst, I I don't know if this is a problem. I'll see what this is actually like. Mm-hmm. And so without getting into all the ebbs and flows and my relationship with Clara, that there's been there'd been some more of that, some other other changes that that provoked that fear, that insecurity, but ultimately we're fine. And then she went away on vacation with her family for a couple of weeks at the end of June. And I went to, I'm going to be somewhat vague here for reasons that may become clear later on. Um, I went to a writing residency program somewhere on the Northern California coast. Mm-hmm. And ordinarily, this writing residency involves a number of writers being there at the same time and working independently on their own projects. Essentially, they give you time and, and space to work in a, in a really beautiful environment. But due to COVID, social distancing, they're now doing one writer at a time. So I had the incredible privilege of being in this magical place entirely alone for three weeks. And it was is probably the most magical place I've ever been. I mean, just the the actual facility itself, the house and the um, the grounds were just breathtaking and the location right on the Northern California coast. And, and I started writing, not shockingly, it is a writing residency, but I've done not much actual prose writing in my life. I, I felt drawn to it. And my first love was not comedy. It wasn't film or any sort of... Um, performing art, it it was and remains books. Mm. And when I was younger, I always thought I'd be a writer. And I did pursue it to some extent. I mean, even through college, I took fiction writing workshops. But I see now that I think I never really allowed myself to fully pursue it, ironically, because it was the thing that I wanted the most. And there's something scary about going for what we really want because of course if you don't get it it's painful mm. not to say that i don't care about comedy and performance I, I have a deep love for those as well but i do feel like yeah writing is to, to write prose was really my oldest artistic ambition mm. i mean from from early childhood and possibly the deepest so the fact that i was writing there felt like it, it felt amazing mm-hmm. Not that the actual act of writing every day felt amazing, it was often plotting and 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 frustrating, but wow, it's like I'm doing this thing I've always wanted to do, but I haven't really seriously pursued um, since college. But very quickly, the OCD started coming in and it started coming in in, in the form of, well, really fear of loss, hmm. which is sort of a commonality with OCD for me. Um, Basically, I'm having this amazing experience in this magical environment, but I'm only here for three weeks. Yeah. And so by like day three or four, the first thought, literally when I'd wake up every morning, my first thought would be, okay, you got 18 days left. You got 17 days left. You got 16 days left. Mm -hmm. And it's this thing I've noticed before with the OCD. And I use the term OCD broadly to kind of 
as sort of a category for these kind of obsessive optimizing thoughts, trying to figure everything out, trying to perfect everything. And so I've seen this before where it's, if I'm in a situation that I really appreciate that can often provoke more of this thinking because it, the, the fear of loss comes in more strongly. Whereas if I'm in a kind of shittier situation, let's say living in a place I don't really like, I may, there may be some unhappiness around that, but at least it, it doesn't produce this fear of loss. Yeah. You say fear of loss. It's, it doesn't sound so much like fear as anticipation. It's like, it's not like yeah, you're afraid this is going to go away. You're, you're it knowing. is going to go away. It's, it's, and a, it's, imper- it's impermanent. This yes. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so that really, so because this was such a special experience, that anticipation of loss and the pain around it yeah. was started to increasingly dominate. And it started kicking in more of my main OCD symptom, which has been so much better. I mean, it's been better for years, but even in recent months, been a lot better which is this decision-making OCD because it's okay. Now you have 15 days left, so you better maximize and optimize every single minute. So I'm going to write from this time to this time, then I'm going to go to the beach, but which beach should I go to? Or maybe I should hike in the woods because it's going to be foggy on the beach. But also it's a Thursday. And if I go to the beach on Friday, it's more crowded because you have people coming in for the weekend and all this just spinning around, calculating in my head. Uh-huh. And and of course, the the net effect of this is, yeah, I'm in paradise, but really I'm in purgatory because I'm making it that way for myself. Yeah. And so I decided to, uh, to bring in the mushrooms. <laughs> and I will say in general, I've not used mushrooms or any psychedelics symptomatically, meaning I haven't really used them like, oh, I'm in the middle of kind of a crisis point. Let me bring this in to see if this can help. Hmm. And, and actually, now that I'm saying this, I'm remembering that wasn't my intent there either. My intent was simply, I'm in this beautiful environment. Um, actually, to be honest, using mushrooms, there was actually more of the optimizing. It was like, well, I'm in this beautiful environment, so I'm going to go to the beach and take like a moderate dose of mushrooms and have this, you know, euphoric experience blissing out in nature. Mm-hmm. I really was not. Now I'm remembering looking for any particular healing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I will say some caveats. Uh, I did not do the mushrooms at this writing retreat. Um, I wasn't, you know, bringing any sort of liability to anyone. I did do them on a beach, but I arranged transportation. So I I wasn't endangering anyone uh, or myself in any way. I just feel the need to put in that caveat because I'm being somewhat uh, vague in terms of identifying where I was, but not not that vague. So (laughs) if people affiliated with this place hear this. Uh, I wasn't doing anything that could that could uh, bring grief to anyone else. So, but even the day I was going to do them, I was just overcome with a lot of the decision making OCD. You know, should I even do them? What dose should I do? Where should I do them? And so, when I took the mushroom, so I took two grams of like average potency mushrooms. I'd mm-hmm. not done this particular batch before, but I got them from a friend who's worked with them and said they were, yeah, average, mm-hmm. which I'm a hardhead when it comes to psychedelics. I have a very high tolerance, probably because I was on SSRI antidepressant medication for 15 years, as you know. I've been off that medication for a long time, but it seems like there's probably still some sort of residual tolerance mm-hmm. as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So two grams for me is, you know, 
mild, very mild. Like, I mean, I wouldn't drive on two grams of mushrooms. I wouldn't drive on any dose of mushrooms, but honestly, I'd feel like I probably could without any, without any trouble. Yeah. And I chose that light dose because again, I was looking just kind of to enhance my experience, not to have any sort of deep, profound journey. But <laughs> for whatever reason, and I, I have some thoughts on this, it was very, very intense, very, very quickly. Hmm. I mean, they kicked in within like 12 minutes. I was feeling definite effects. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, I can't, this has to be placebo, but yeah. it, it got stronger and stronger. And very quickly, my, my immediate reaction was, I don't want this. I don't want a strong trip. I certainly don't want a strong trip on this public beach albeit it's a big beach and I was able to walk to a place where I was essentially secluded. And, but most of all, in my current fragile state, I certainly don't want a strong mushroom journey. And, and moreover, how can I be having a strong mushroom journey? This is, this is two grams. This would be the perfect place to plug uh, some, a sponsorship from MindMed, the company <laughs> trying to advertise a psychedelic canceling drug they're right mind med <laughs> listeners are not familiar there they are um yeah they, they're they've announced they're trying to develop uh, basically an off switch i think specifically for lsd trips something that will abort the experience yeah i think they're not actually developing anything i think i was uh, listening to a podcast with the the guys from symposia recently where they were talking about how they're just trying to patent a drug called ketanserin which is a well-known has oh, been really? used in research for a long time, which is well known to to block the five HT two A receptor. So, yeah, they're they're not even developing okay. such a thing, which, as I hope we're about to find out, um, is not what you want to do because a a difficult experience can uh, unfold in all sorts of different productive ways. Well, I think a lot of it though depends on also how much experience you have under your belt with psychedelics and yeah. how much set and setting. So I have enough experience that, you know, I've learned through trial and unfortunately very painful error that if I kick and scream during a difficult psychedelic experience, I just, I make it infinitely worse. Yeah. And so very quickly I, I found myself going to a prayer. I came up with a prayer and my prayer was, I was praying for the willingness to surrender wanting things to be different wanting anything to be different yeah. on this trip. If people yeah. were too close to me, just being like, okay, finding my, seeing my mind going to, oh, I wish they weren't so close, or I wish that cloud didn't go in front of the sun, or yeah. I wish I hadn't taken so much, or I wish I had, I didn't have so much food in my stomach, so I didn't feel so empty and really just not giving those thoughts any quarter, just as soon as they were coming up praying, please remove this thought. I, 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 I felt like I couldn't afford it in yeah. that state. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not going to do a full trip report here. That's not what this is about. But <laughs> I, maybe I, I probably will talk about this trip on stage at some point, you know, if we ever go back to a point where there are stages and public gatherings. <laughs> but, <laughs> but suffice to say, it was very, very, very uncomfortable for, you know, it's hard to have a sense of time, but for I'd say for 15 for or 16 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was stuck in that Bardo for uh, several eons. I came out and Trump is still president in the year 3030. I don't fucking get it. His uh, disembodied head is <laughs> governing from a vat, if you want to call it governing. That's a terrible term. 
No, but after about an hour, and so for this hour, really what it was, it was just continually trying to turn over any sort of resistance and really going to gratitude, mm. feeling that, okay, I'm being given a strong experience. Certainly wasn't what I thought I signed up for, but trusting that this experience is unfolding as it should and that my only work here is to be open, is to surrender, mm. not to try to figure it out. And humility. I was praying again and again for humility. What or whom was I praying to? I mean, we've talked before about prayer, and it's increasingly probably the most important tool, for lack of a better term, that I use. I mean, meditation is key. Psychedelics are very important. But prayer is the one I'd probably least like to give up. And in that case, there was a sense of praying to God, but there was also a sense of praying to mushrooms, praying to some sort of se- some sort of order or intelligence that I can't mm-hmm. I can't define. I mean, what does God mean? What what do mushrooms mean in this context? It's it's it doesn't really demystify anything using those terms. But yeah, I was sort of. But the the you it sounds like you had the vague idea that there was some sort of spirit in the plant that you were eating. Yeah, there was a sense that I've rarely gotten on psychedelics, even on ayahuasca, of communing with something. Yeah. Well, and like, I, th- I think I've brought this up before we've talked. I, when people ask about, yeah, my, my spiritual beliefs and stuff, and, uh, you know, I'm, by and large, the the furthest out edge of my spiritual beliefs where you bump up into like, yeah, the idea of praying to an entity or imagining that there is some uh, some sort of metaphysical presence out there. It's like that has those edges have always come in challenging psychedelic experiences. And it's sort of like there's no atheists in a foxhole. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> here yeah. sitting sitting comfortably sober minded. Um I don't feel any need to really flex the edges of, of like my materialist worldview. But when you're deep in the trenches, just like, you know, getting, getting bombarded by the, by the, by the German blitzkrieg, it's like you wind up praying pretty quick. So I think Jordan just likened uh, plant medicine to Nazis. If I'm... No, that's a world war one yeah. reference. Oh, it's a world war one reference. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I hear I hear Germans I hear Germans attacking and a Jew making the analogy and I I, I immediately go to Nazis. No, proto. These were the good Germans. <laughs> um, no, but I I I do I do agree with what you're saying. But I will also say, I mean, for me, connection and belief and faith in a higher power is increasingly just a part of my existence independent of psychedelics but i will say psychedelics formed a lot of the foundation for that for sure yeah so that's awesome so So you're on so you're on the beach you're going through it you're busting out the prayer you're asking to i just love the yeah i love that prayer that you arrived at just praying to accept what was going on praying to not want anything to be different. Yeah. And that was the way I conceived of it as I was, and this has happened before on psychedelics, particularly ayahuasca where, I mean, we've talked about this before. For me, I would say the greatest gift of psychedelics has been a connection to my body Mm -hmm. and a corollary to that 
is that on psychedelic experiences, but also now off them, I often have an awareness of, of my <laughs> certain OCD tendencies or thoughts. It's like I can almost physically localize them in my brain, meaning I can feel my attention being pulled inside of my cranium when I'm having those thoughts. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so on this trip, there was a sense of these thoughts uh, sort of gestating and then emanating from this particular part in my head, sort of like the base of my skull. Mm -hmm. And so that prayer was really, well, let me just let that go completely. When I find my attention going up into my head and going to these resistant thoughts, let me, yep, let me surrender that. Mm -hmm. And instead say yes and see this all as a gift and, and to love everything. That happened to me at an ayahuasca experience at Niwe Rao where you were as well, where I had this moment where I was like, oh, I, I actually, I want to love everything, love all of it, love the giant cockroach crawling along the bathroom wall as I'm, you know, on the toilet in Niwe Rao in 90 degree weather. And so that's what a lot of this was, but it was still, it was quite uncomfortable Partially because I think I didn't have quite, my stomach wasn't as empty as I would have liked it to be. For me, stomach contents have such a massive effect on psychedelic experience. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of nausea and And yeah, but that's so often for me, the thing that I'm struggling the most to not want to change uh, is nausea. Yeah. Well, you get a lot of it. We've talked about about it, right? Even when you fast. Even when I fast, better than it used to be. When I yeah. first, when I first um, started working with ayahuasca, it, I had, I had ceremonies where it was, you know, it felt like four or five hours of the most wrenching oh nausea. <laughs> I remember you told me about that. It was just, I hate nausea so much. I hate it so 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 much. Well, so here here's a little perspective on that that. Uh, I wasn't even going to bring this up today because we have a lot to cover, but I did have a subsequent mushroom trip um, quite recently in a different environment, and I'd learned my lesson. I I was not totally fasted, but my stomach was empty, and I think there's other reasons for this as well, but that trip was kind of inconsequential, and I had the thought during the trip of, oh, without the nausea, without having some sort of obstacle to practice surrender and acceptance around – it almost robs the trip of something. Totally. I love that. It, yeah. There's, do you, do you know Shanru Suzuki? Shanru Suzuki, I think. Zen mind, beginner's mind. Yeah. Sort of like the founder of Zen in America. Right. I th- no, there's another That's Suzuki. That's a different Suzuki. There's a different Suzuki who's more like the founder. But the, Shanru Suzuki founded, I think, the Zen Center of San Francisco, some Northern California Zen centers. Zen mind, beginner's mind is probably yeah. one of my three or four, not probably, is one of my three or four just most formative, influential books I've ever read. And he talks about when you're sitting, often there's some sort of, he calls it a restriction, a tightness, your shoulder is cramping, or you your breath isn't going quite to your belly. And he talks about how that is actually, the, these aren't restrictions or obstacles to the practice, these are the yeah. practice. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing specifically about Zen. I don't know much about you know yeah i'm 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 no great student of buddhism but i've i did a little bit of zen meditation and there's all these rules and structures that you follow they're called forms 
And at first blush, they seem really uh, stupid and annoying. Like you have to fluff the pillow twice and then turn right uh, in order to sit down, not left. And it was explained to me at one point that one way to... One way to approach the the Zen forms is that they're sort of a container within which you can find yourself. Um, so noticing noticing your reaction to the fact that you're supposed to fluff the pillow exactly twice and then turn clockwise is uh, a really useful object of meditation. And I thought that was helpful. So same with nausea. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, these things that may seem seem like hindrances or restrictions, or in the case of these forms that you're talking about, arbitrary, become something to work with. Yeah. And to, like you said, to see our reactions. So, so yeah, I was back to this, this trip on the beach. So there was a lot of nausea and a lot of discomfort. And, but yeah, I was praying, I was surrendering, and I was praying for humility a lot. I was praying for just... Really, because I think I went into this trip in a pretty broken, surrendered place already because the OCD had been kicking my ass for a few days. And I think that was possibly why it was such a strong trip, set and setting in some way. And also, I kind of went in already almost pre-accepting. Like I was ready, I was already, you know, because I often think, all right, in the context of OCD, when I go through what I would call an OCD crisis, the the sort of trajectory is I'm fighting, I'm fighting, I'm trying to hold on, I'm trying to control. The more I try to hold on and control and fight, the worse things get, the worse things get, the more I try to control because I'm addicted. You know, it's an addiction. I'm trying to, and then finally yeah. I reach this breaking point where I let go because I just can't hold on anymore. And then that's when the peace can come in. And I was pretty much at that breaking point with the OCD when I took these mushrooms. And so that first hour was uncomfortable. And then it started shifting into something that I, I again, I'm not going to go into a trip report, but was just really, really surpassingly beautiful. It felt like grace in the religious sense. It felt like I was being graced with this just astounding magical experience of it felt like i was being loved it felt like i was being loved by god by mushrooms it was it should be mentioned probably the most perfect beach day i've ever experienced in northern california you know it's so rare that you get perfect sunshine and no wind especially this time of year and and also the fact that i had taken such a small dose but had such a powerful experience all of that sort of contributed to this growing sense i had that wow i am i've been given this gift this love in the form of this experience and it moved to a place beyond words i, I wouldn't say it was a plus 4 experience in the shulgin scale it wasn't like this samadhi experience to use the zen uh, terminology of, you know, loss of self, loss of ego, merging into everything, but it wasn't far off from there. Mm. I felt like my thoughts really just started to drop away. And I found this, this deep stillness that I don't know if I've ever found it before for such a sustained period of time. I mean, there were there were long stretches, 10, 20 minutes where I was really just sitting. So I, I, by this point I was in Zazen posture. I was in meditation posture on the beach and just present, just very, very present. And yeah, it was, 
It was uh, one of the strongest, most powerful psychedelic experiences I've ever had on a dose that's a quarter of what I've often done in mushrooms and not approach this, this, this depth of experience. And that itself made it feel more special that like, oh, there's some magic at work here. I can't explain it just in terms of how much psilocybin I've ingested. And it felt, and during the experience, another thing that felt significant is often in the past when I've had what seemed like significant experiences on psychedelics or not on psychedelics, meditation or any, any sort of kind of altered experience or, or what might feel like a transformative experience. Part of the experience is me trying to hold on to that experience or trying to figure out like, oh, how is this, you know, how am I going to integrate this into my life? How am I going to benefit from this? But I knew because I was in this place and I feel like, um, you know, you and I, this is a side note, but in the past we've tried to edit podcasts. Now I think we're pretty much done with that. We're just putting these out raw. If I was going to edit this, I'd feel a strong, strong temptation to edit this part because I, I feel like I'm, uh. I'm not capturing it well, and I'm kind of rambling a bit here. So it's a it's a difficult thing to capture. Yeah. Le- so as they say, one th- uh, one thing I will say is there was a sense even during the experience of trying to hold on to this experience is precisely what I'm trying to get away from. What I'm trying to surrender. Yeah. What's well, interesting because as you're talking about it, I noticed my mind going to like yeah so how did this how did this change anything what did you do with it give me the like four-step integration process which is it's tricky because integration is so important psychedelic experiences are you know plenty of people say a psychedelic experience is only good as as the integration and what you do with it after otherwise it can just be like some ecstatic experience you had at burning man that doesn't uh, change your framework in any way that said it can become like puritanical um right when yeah if taken too far and you know where's the room for just um beauty and grace for for beauty and grace's sake and that was how i was feeling is whatever comes of this i'm having this experience and that is enough yeah there was a feeling of, yeah, I guess I'll talk about this, a feeling of being taken care of that I've had before, but never to this degree, a feeling that the universe, that God, whatever has me Mm. is holding me with infinite tenderness and love. And that all these things I worry about, should I go to the beach or should I go to the woods? Should I, you know, do this thing or this thing? What should I do with this relationship are entirely inconsequential because the broader context is that I'm, I'm taken care of. I don't have to worry about this stuff. Mm. And these weren't thoughts so much as a really deeply felt sense, I I should say. Mm -hmm. And that persisted in the aftermath of the experience that persisted. And well, so let's, so Clara, the woman who I've been with for seven months or so, so she had been on vacation for like I said, for a couple of weeks, she was supposed to come and visit me the next day. But I woke up that morning, that next morning, and I felt like, no, you know, I want, I want a little bit more space to integrate this. Mm. And so I told her that and she was okay with that. And, um, yeah, I'm deciding what direction to go here. Well, 
Yeah. So there was this general sense of being okay. And so, yeah, let me be more specific. There was zero OCD for days after that. Just none of that, all yeah. this th this fear that had been dominating me, this, this fear of losing the place where this magical setting was just gone. It was like, well, I have it now. I mean, it wasn't even a logical thing about why I shouldn't be afraid. I just wasn't afraid. I think again, though, if I want to make it logical, it was because there was this sense of, oh, you're taken care of, mm -hmm. man. You don't have to, and I saw, because this experience was a while ago, some stuff is coming back to me now, I saw how much, even if I'm not engaging in outright OCD, how much of my brain is occupied with trying to optimize everything, and that's all predicated on this deeply held, if not quite conscious belief that I have to kind of make sure everything is okay and optimized, otherwise things are going to not be okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it feels like when you're in an OCD spiral, the image that comes to mind is like um, uh, an eight-year-old kid whose parents, who's abandoned by their parents, not that that happened to you, but like a little child who's abandoned at home and has to take care of all this stuff that they sh shouldn't rightfully have to take care of. There should be a larger presence taking care of it. And I think there's an argument to be made that in the absence of any spiritual orientation, that's sort of how we all are, that, you know, even as adults, if we, yeah, if we lose touch with some sort of sense that there is, uh, whatever you want to call it, a, some sort of numinous tapestry out there holding us and taking care of us, then we all feel like those kids who are like, I don't know how to make toast. I'm a little kid. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. And and let's go into that metaphor a little bit more. These are life or death stakes for the eight-year-old. Yeah. You know, he literally has to feed himself and, yeah. and bathe himself to survive. Yeah. So and that's how, yeah, go on. So then I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how it goes when Clara comes and, you know, because so much of what I imagine I think so often where we go wrong is we project that need for caretaking onto humans. Um, yes. Rather than, yeah, we expect, you know, perhaps because we have these impoverished modern spiritual lives, we project that sort of divine need for grace and care onto a flesh and blood uh, romantic partner, you know, often when, when we're adults. And that's a recipe for disaster because, uh, Clara is not God. Yeah. Or a mom or mom. Yeah. She's not mom. <laughs> she's not mom. God divine mother. He, There's a really, uh, uh, the book he by Robert Johnson is coming to mind. I read it mm -hmm. recently and he talks about, um, uh, the various feminine archetypes, um, including, you know, from like flesh and blood mother flesh and blood uh wife or romantic partner whatever um to like yeah divine mother and he talks about the how uh, the problems arise when we mix up who's supposed to be doing what when you when we expect flesh and blood mother to be you know to have the same capacity for boundless caring and holding as uh, the guy in earth mother or something like that. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if that's part of why, 
Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm having trouble articulating this, but if if issues with parental attachment to some extent are are would be resolved if there was more of a a connection, a spiritual connection, a connection to God. You said it first. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, to answer your, your you question. Felt, you so, felt held. Oh, right. With that, yes. So these few days after you feel just like, yeah. So, yeah. You're not alone. Not, not alone. And also like, yeah, just not having to worry about all these these decisions. But in terms of Clara, so even I should say this, even before this experience, when I got to this writing residency and and Clara's away for a few weeks, I realized pretty quickly, wow, it feels this feels very spacious. This was sort of before the OCD really started kicking in, but it, it, those first few days there. And I realized, wow, so much of my consciousness in these recent months has been dedicated to solving the problem of Clara, the problem mm. of what is this relationship? Do I love her? Does she love me? What do I want when there is an actual quote unquote problem, some sort of conflict? What am I going to do about that? But when there's not a problem or conflict, just trying to figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. And she, uh, I've talked before, she's a very wise person, I think. And she had actually said this like a week before she said, you know, in this quarantine, like I've sort of been your project basically. Mm -hmm. And it's not been an, an entirely bad thing because I haven't been in a relationship like this in a very long time. And I, I have learned a lot through this relationship, but it has taken up a lot of space for me. Yeah. And it has also been, um, it has been injected perhaps with all this extra tension your psyche is downloading from the ambient around you during this time of great stress. It's like, yes, um, right. That's there's like you open your phone in the morning and read the, and just do some like doom scrolling and then <laughs> that gets, uh, channeled, or I think a, an appropriate psychoanalytic <laughs> term would be cathected into, into like, okay, what's something I can fix? Uh, what's something I right, can't control? Right, like right, yeah. Relationship project. So there's been, you've had a lot of extra juice coming in too. Yeah, maybe. That hasn't been my conscious experience, but yeah. certainly one could argue that that in this time of, of upheaval where we're clearly powerless over a lot of what's going on, fixate on this, this little domain where I do ostensibly have some control, but of course yeah. I have very limited control because it's another human being. Yeah. And also, to be clear, it's not like I've been trying to control her in any overt way, but I've been figuring out, I suppose, is a form of control. There's been a lot of figuring out, thinking, and I mean, let's be honest, this podcast is is an outgrowth of that to some extent, or certainly a lot of our episodes have been about that. Yeah. And it has been. I, it has, I don't want to paint it as a pathological process. I think it has yielded fruits and insight and, and understanding. Well, yeah, I think you also recognized that one of, uh, uh, like all the difficult feelings that came up helped you to recognize that something important was happening here with this woman and that you would be well served to turn toward it and really focus on it rather than just doing what perhaps you would have done in the past, which is say, which is find some imperfection and write it off. 
Sure. Yeah. I'm saying no, it just didn't, it just wasn't going to work out because she's like this and I'm like this, her eyebrows crooked. She doesn't like the same, uh, her, her favorite season of the Simpsons isn't my favorite season of the Simpsons. <laughs> she so likes you, like 20. <laughs> yeah. You turned toward it. Yes. But also let's, let's be fair here. Turning towards it doesn't have to entail a lot of thinking and figuring out to the extent that I've done it. But yeah. I mean, this is the way I engage with the world. So I think it's somewhat inevitable. And I think, you know, I'm not sure if it's so much the doom scrolling that got affected into this, but I will say one thing is a lot of my creative energy, most of my creative energy in the past would go to performance and yeah. writing for the stage, yeah. and I'm not doing that. So I have a lot yeah. of a lot of thinking bandwidth that's yeah. not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so it all went to her. And so now that I have this break from her, I'm on this residency, she's on vacation. I'm like, wow, it just it feels good not having my brain constant. And also I think this is to what I just said, I'm also now immersed in these writing projects. So now a lot of my creative energy is going yeah. to that. And it just yeah. felt, it felt even with the OCD in the background before this mushroom trip, it still felt like there was more peace there without thinking about it all the time. Yeah. So there was already some ambivalence about, wow, do I want her to come join me on this writing residency before the mushroom trip? But after the mushroom trip, so she got there uh, I had her delay her arrival a day. She got there and yeah, I, there was a strong sense of ambivalence, not so much about her, but about her being there. Mm -hmm. And so after a couple of days, I actually asked her to leave and she's always so understanding and supportive about these things. So she, so she did. So she left for a few days and then, and then she came back and, but part of what had shifted for me is it felt like, so I'm 46 now. I would say I reached my sort of nadir of, of psychological health probably when I was about, um, well, early thirties mm -hmm. and things really started, well, maybe mid thirties. So things have, have really for the past 10 years, things have been getting better and better for me in every aspect of my life, creatively, professionally, relationships, general health, OCD. But even with that, there still has often generally been a sense of something not being quite right, of some problem I have to fix. It's not there continuously. It was there continuously when I was younger, but I'd say it's there continually. It flares up a lot and it drives per what you were saying. A lot of this like, oh, I need to kind of figure everything out because I'm an eight-year-old without a parent to take care of me. Yeah. And it really felt like now that that had been, and I'll, spoiler alert, it's now almost two months later and I still feel that way. Now that there's this basic feeling of, I'll say wholeness hmm. that had always eluded me to some extent. I don't know. So this is an audio podcast, but we have video so we can, we can, you know, see each other. And I don't know if that expression is skepticism or, or <laughs> it's like, man, I don't know if we have a podcast anymore. What am I going to do without $0? <laughs> Adam pays me on top of our $0 of advertising revenue. Uh, it was probably more jealousy than anything. Like, <laughs> shit, I want wholeness. <laughs> It's well, well, yeah, let's, I'll, I'll talk more about this as I, as we go through this, but there was in the aftermath and it has persisted this feeling of like, yeah, you're basically okay. You're basically okay. You don't have to, this thing of like, tr yeah, 
you're you're okay. And an outgrowth of that during this trip was also, oh, you don't have to worry anymore about optimizing everything. You have to worry more now. Well, you don't have to worry, first of all. Worry, let's let that go. And that is something I've really let go. I mean, that's been a gradual thing over years, but especially since that trip. But the focus is less on what do I need to do to make myself feel okay? Now that I know I'm okay, how am I going to serve others? Oh. And that's informed a lot of decisions, real decisions for me over the past six weeks or so. Home run. Yeah, crushing it with the <laughs> spiritual <laughs> spiritual home run, knocking it out of the leapfrogging, leapfrogging from Take that, all you other seekers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you you put in some hard groundwork of however many uh, however many deep penetrating uh, preparatory sessions with yours truly. That's right. So the point where it only took two, I mean, I got you right there. And then it was two grams of mushrooms was just like a a stiff breeze came and like knocked you over the finish line. That was the topper on the full dose of Jordan Iper MD I'd been already imbibed. That was the hit of nitrous on the LSD trip that Jordan Iper MD represents. Hey, that's that's patented. (laughs) Right. That's a patented formulation I'm developing. Uh, Mindtronics LLC. <laughs> Headquarters in Bermuda. Yeah. Tax reasons. <laughs> no, but it it but to Clara, I want to I want to get to this because you mentioned something. So, an unexpected and maybe somewhat unwelcome result of this feeling okay was suddenly seeing how much of my relationship with Clara was driven by the sense of need, by the sense of inadequacy. Mm. And now that that felt basically, not maybe entirely, but largely removed, there was this sudden question of why am I with this person? It's huge. And I saw it so clearly about, yeah, just so much in a sense, we've talked before about how sometimes my existence can feel like I'm kind of trying to, like I have the sort of this machine or whatever, and I'm optimized, I'm tweaking all these little dials and knobs to try to optimize my experience. So smoke weed, all right, I'm going to turn that dial, go for a hike, I'm going to turn that dial, masturbate, I'm going to turn that dial, have sex, all these little things. And Clara had become probably the biggest dial on this machine in that it was, especially once she reunited with her pre-existing lover, Rob. And so at that point, that was beginning early June, the shift in our relationship, practically speaking, was that I no longer had her whenever I wanted her. Yeah. It was sort of, she was controlling how much I could see her because she was also seeing Rob and then needed time on on her own. And so that almost made it easy for me because it was like, oh, okay, well, I want to see her as much as I can see her. So that's my sort of algorithm I'm trying to execute with Clara. Does that make sense? That's the optimization strategy is see her as often as I can see her. Yeah. She was an input. She, uh, she was yet another very powerful input into this constant like um, hedonic treadmill. You mm-hmm. call, you, I think that's that's a term. Yeah. And certainly not only that, uh, you know, there was, there was genuine deep feeling and concern and caring and, and all of that, but certainly part of it was, yeah, an input into this hedonic treadmill is a good way to put it. And so now that this hedonic, I've suddenly stepped off the hedonic treadmill. You've suddenly gotten enlightened. 
So now that I've suddenly gotten enlightened, <laughs> now that I've <laughs> now that I've found this sense of yeah, basically being okay. Not great, not perfect, but just okay. I don't there's not a problem that needs to be fixed in every moment or in many moments. There was realizing how much of that need, this sort of neediness had driven the relationship. And absent that neediness, what is this relationship? Yeah. That's a biggie. I I remember when I was um at the maps training that came up in a lot of the uh, cases we learned about a lot of the videos we watched uh, maybe not a lot but but several prominent examples came up in in some of the veteran cases we went through people who are in relationships with very particular confirmations that were you know had a lot of codependency and need mm-hmm. in them and then one person undergoes a pretty rapid you know massive healing and it can introduce a lot of tension into the relationship. I, you know, I think divorces often result from from this sort of thing. It's sort of like a, yeah, it almost needs to be in the the sort of informed consent uh, <laughs> under the risk section, like undergoing you know powerful powerful spiritual growth, powerful psychological healing can lead to the disintegration of relationships that were, that you were hanging on to that you had a need for before. Yeah. And I actually shared this with her that, you know, that I was seeing very clearly how she had kind of partially been this optimizing factor. And, and she was very happy to see me getting freedom from that. I mean, one thing about her is she's very independent and I think has probably been concerned that maybe I've not been as independent in the relationship. Yeah. And so far from being threatened, she thought it was a wonderful thing. The way she puts it is relationships for her, you know, it's the cherry on top of her life. Mm. And, and but it's not her life. And this was evidenced. I don't know if we talked about this um when we did our last podcast, but she has since moved to Los Angeles. Mm. And that was a big thing for me because, first of all, there's a fucking pandemic lockdown. So she she's an actor. So it would make sense under ordinary times, but it's not like <laughs> there's a lot of work there right now. But moving to Los Angeles means leaving me um, and leaving Rob. And But she's very clear that relationships are not going to be a factor in these sorts of decisions for her. Yeah. So, so she didn't seem at all threatened by this change, but it was – it was challenging for me because it was like, well, I think I still want to be with her, but yeah, it was, it was really tr- seeing how much of it had been driven, how much of my desire to be with her had been driven by this feeling of lack or something wrong with me. Hmm. And she was, and she was totally down for your growth. And yeah. Yeah. She was totally, she was, yeah. she was so down. This is one of the things I'll say about her that like, so I didn't know this cause she didn't want to burden me with this, but she was, so she was coming back from her family vacation, but she was not allowed to go back to her house in San Francisco. Cause she had just gotten off a plane. She had to quarantine elsewhere. So the plan mm-hmm. had been that she was going to stay with me. Yeah. But when I told her, Hey, I actually want some more space. She didn't even mention that what this was going to require was her basically cobbling together housing, sleeping on people's floors. She wound up getting a motel for one night because she didn't want to put that on me because she didn't want me to feel pressure to modify my decisions on account of her. Wow. 
Yeah. Hmm. So, and I now, now know in hindsight, I actually put her through a lot in that regard because then she did come, she did come back, but there was some, I kind of delayed. I said, oh, you can come back in a few days. And then I was like, actually, I need a little more time. And, and she, um, yeah, she, she did not want to put that on me. So you can keep that one in your back pocket next time. Next time a juicy opportunity to feel aggrieved comes up that you just just attempted to sink your teeth into. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) You can pull that out. Well, we'll, 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 uh, we'll get to that, my friend. Oh, good. Next few, few, certainly before the end of this episode. (laughs) So yeah, we gotta, we gotta keep moving because we gotta, I mean, you put all this, you, you got enlightened and then you decided to bring that newfound enlightenment to the ultimate proving grounds the childhood right. home <laughs> the childhood home we, we will get to that or maybe not we'll, we'll certainly get through updating stuff with clara so <laughs> so yeah the general feeling so she gave me a few more days then she came back to this this writing residency on the coast of california and it felt to me I don't know if it felt like things were different or if I had a different awareness, but it felt like at times it felt like we were really connected, but at times it felt like we weren't that connected. And I guess that's something that I've felt through the entire relationship. And I realized that's normal. And when I brought that up with her, she's expressed concern that I see that as an issue because she's like, that's the way it is. Yeah. You know, there's a honeymoon period for sure, but then yeah, there's ebbs and flows. Yeah, But there was this continual thought in my mind. I won't say obsession because I wasn't really obsessing about it, but it was sort of an inquiry that I was exploring in my journal entries of what do I want from this relationship now? Mm. And do I want to be in this relationship, which on the face of it seemed like, seemed like, I mean, it was such a dramatic shift, Jordan, because a few days before the trip, I was talking to her. And she was saying that, oh, maybe she would stay on vacation a little longer and see me a few days later than originally anticipated. And I got really upset about that. I concealed it mostly, but I was like, oh, I'm going to have even fewer days with her. And now I want more space. Yeah. And so what do I want? And I, I wasn't sure. I mean, it seemed like, all right, she's, I'll say brilliant. I think that's an accurate term. She's yeah, an extremely intelligent person, creative considerate in most ways, though I have had some concerns, like just on paper, checks all the boxes, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, um, great sex life, all, all of this stuff. So it's, it was like, well, why wouldn't I want to be with her? But yet there was this sense of, I'm not so sure about this right now. Mm-hmm. And I've said this before to you, you know, this idea that it's very easy to want, it's often harder to have. Mm-hmm. And I... I, I've used that in the context of this general sense of, oh, I want to be in a relationship for the years that I wasn't in a relationship. This feeling of, oh, if I just had a relationship, everything would be great. And now I have a relationship and, oh, yeah, there's some gains, some some wonderful things, but there's also some losses. But more specifically with Clara, when there was a sense of, well, she has Rob and she needs her independence and it's kind of like, I want more than maybe she wants to give me. Mm-hmm. I now saw that I'd now post this trip that there was actually something comforting in that, in in wanting. It's easy Uh to want. uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but now that I have, like now that she's here, you know, at this Northern California coast and she's willing to stay as long as I want it, what do I actually want with her? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't clear on that. And so basically we had a little bit more time there than I had a little bit of time in San Francisco. And then I flew East to, for family vacation and to be with my parents. And so that remaining time with her, yeah, it sort of was in that space of, at times it it felt, I don't know if it felt like we were less connected at times than we had been before, but I was more aware of being less connected because maybe I was getting less of a buzz from just this kind of codependent, oh, this, I'm with this person who fulfills me in some way. Yeah. It's, it feels like a pretty fundamental shift in how you're relating to her and, um, what type of space she's occupying in your mind. It's she's almost been like demoted from in, in going through this development process that you, it sounds like you kind of rapidly had a taste of on this retreat. She gets demoted from, uh, a sort of mythical, mythical, like, almost deified woman level down to like, Oh, she's a person. She's a normal person whose armpits smell sometimes. And with all the normal, like foibles of, of a normal human being. And there's a recalibration that happens Mm -hmm. in making that shift. I think that's, I'm not sure. So I don't know if I'd say, it sounds to me like you're saying like, I kind of idealized her before. I think that's, I don't, yeah, not, not quite idealized. Or more like she was a savior. Yeah. So it had more of like an addictive quality or Mm -hmm. more of like a mythic quality. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. More of like, yeah, it was just almost like, I don't want to reduce her to this because there was a lot more even before this trip, but yes, there was an addictive quality. There was a, 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 an element of, of, oh yeah, this is something I want to get. Yeah. And she was, she had, she, she could, she was the solution. Like she held the answers. Well, no, so this is, it gets a little tricky because I don't think I quite saw her that way Mm -hmm. because there was, even before this, as you know, from listening to me talk about this for hours and hours, doubts about her prior to this. Um, And there were questions about what is this relationship really? And questions about, you know, do I love her? Should I say I love her? There was, there was that, but I think part of it was, so there was a moment, this was where I might've recounted this on a previous sessionode, but uh, we were, were, you know, this was something had changed. This was soon after she was reuniting with Rob and we were, we were in, you know, kind of not an argument, but I was being really, I was very upset about some, some piece of news related to her reuniting with Rob and feeling insecure. And I said something like, you know, I just keep feeling like I need to win you over. And she said, you've already won me over. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because it was like, oh yeah, like why, if I look at the actual circumstances, her really prioritizing spending time with me, all of this stuff. 
it's not like I need to win over yet. There's a part of me that still feels like I do. And I think part of me likes to feel that way, likes to feel, I mean, let's bring it back to stand up comedy. One of the things I love about stand up comedy and one of the reasons it can be addictive is there's a very clear objective endpoint. You want to make the audience laugh when they laugh, you're doing your job, you're winning them over. Yeah. So the idea of this person being someone who I had to win over, even after I'd won her over, I think even though it gave me anxiety, feeling like I need to win her over, there was also a comfort in that because it gave me some sort of tangible goal. Yeah. And so I think you're right in a way when I push back against the idea that she was a salvation, but maybe there was an element of that, even if I didn't consciously believe it, that, oh yeah, I need to win her over because then things will be good. Yeah. I don't think that, like, I don't think that term salvation or whatever I said, I don't think I'm using very precise language, but this general idea that a, a hole in you was going to be filled by something, whether it's obsessing or whether it's getting your relationship figured out with her or jerking off or smoking weed or that that's something needed to fill a hole in you and then it sounds like after this journey you were feeling just generally you were feeling pretty generally whole already um and so with less clinging after this or that potential solution to your problems necessary yeah yeah i think you put it perfectly and so that was yeah, sorry, go on. I find myself wondering what it's like because I know that stand up, I, I, I wonder what performing stand up would feel like right now from this energetic place that you're describing of, of feeling more contented and whole. And, and given that's not an, an option, I wonder what it feels like to be talking to me right now and, and recording this right now from this place. Are you, does it, does it feel like there's any shifts from the last time we did this or? No, it's interesting. So I have performed stand up in a similar from a similar place a couple of times, like very soon after plant medicine sessions, like the next yeah. day after an ayahuasca ceremony. I'm insane. I, I do an ayahuasca ceremony in Brooklyn and then the next day do six stand up sets. <laughs> and and it's generally been like pretty revelatory yeah. where I'm just feeling like I don't really need anything from the audience. And of course, when they don't sense that you need anything from them, everyone can relax yeah. and it can be this really magical, organic experience. I ha- have some tapes of some of those sets I want to post, but this session, I, I am feeling some, <clears throat> I don't know if I would say performance anxiety, but I am feeling um, a sense of yeah, I guess it is some performance anxiety because I feel like oh, I'm not really well. I'm not really articulating things that clearly. Um, but then I also will say part of my experience is this: is I am consciously choosing to let it go. So what I've said to myself more than once during this session is I feel like I'm not really articulating things the way I want to. Hmm. But this is we're going to put this out anyway, and this will be an imperfect document of two imperfect humans sharing this, this moment, whatever it is. Yeah. One thing I'm really appreciating about this conversation right now is how it's a reminder for me of, you know, the very many times that I have touched into this state of wholeness and grace, and then, you know, you let it slip away. Um, and I feel as though I'm in one of those places right now where I've, I've been traveling for the last like six weeks and it's kind of harder to stay on your, 
sort of, you know, stay on top of your practices and the, th- and the things that keep you touched more, more in touch with, uh, that feeling of wholeness. And so I haven't meditated in like a week and it feels really good to be reminded that this state, you know, can come and go and that it's available to me. And obviously the ideal is to have it be available without needing to go through the rigors of a psychedelic experience. Um, cause that first hour or so is pretty, it can be a pretty high cost of entry sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that discomfort. <laughs> and we, yeah. sort of breezed, we sort of breezed through it. And I think it is to, I think it is a credit to your, um, to your experience with psychedelics, your wisdom, uh, and how to use these tools, but things can go real sideways. And but I think, yeah, but even more than that, I think it's, it's my experience in, in life with, and prayer and meditation of, I mean, a prayer that I use almost every day, and whenever I'm struggling with anything is I pray for the willingness to be uncomfortable. Mm. So I have a lot of practice and it's not just through prayer and meditation. It's also through cognitive behavioral therapy and psychedelics too, but of, of really cultivating this willingness to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Because the great paradox is the more willing you are to be uncomfortable, the less uncomfortable you are. But yeah. if you're only willing to be uncomfortable so that you are less uncomfortable, then that's not true willingness. Yeah. I recently went on a pretty arduous backpacking trip about uh, this this loop in New Hampshire, pretty well-known loop called the Pemijuaset Loop. And it's really brutal. It's a... Um, you know, there were a couple of days that were like 10 to 12 hours of hiking and just really, wow. really gassed. And I kept repeating to myself something in my mind that I think I'd heard on the Joe Rogan podcast recently when he was interviewing someone talking about like ultra marathoning or something, which was it. What sucks is if it doesn't suck, it's like <laughs> you kind of want it to suck sometimes to, yeah. get the, to derive the benefits. I just said that to well, myself, sucks if it and- doesn't suck. And this connects to right what what you know the nausea with the psychedelic experience yeah. or the 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 crick in your shoulder when you're trying to meditate, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, um, that was so that that was that was the experience with Clara back in the Bay Area before um, she moved to LA, and I came back east. Was you know there were some beautiful moments but there was a growing sense of, again, I'll say inquiry on my part of why am I in this relationship? And then a sort of meta inquiry. Why am I even making this inquiry? She's beautiful. She's smart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's not, Mm -hmm. but yet there is this question. And so that is something that I have to be cognizant of. Sure. And this has come up in previous conversations is, questioning what what do you want where are you in your life do you want a partner who can be who ha- where there's maybe more clearly a path toward you know starting a family together or something 
And but I, I'll be clear. Sorry, I'm laughing because there's an ant crawling around my computer, and I was thinking if it was if it you, you've talked about the Simpsons episode <laughs> right, before, no if the ant crawls right in front of my webcam, <laughs> you think the ant overlords have finally come and taken us? What is it? This guy is really insistent. He keeps crawling back and forth. What, if they can put out, if they can put out the fires, I welcome their presence. <laughs> they are overlords. Um, I, I don't want to hurt you, but I am. I don't want you crawling there. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I don't think you want to be on my computer. I don't know where he went. Um, so, uh, in my pre-enlightened state, I would have crushed this ant, but no, I wouldn't. Have. I'm very when, whenever there's insects, even mosquitoes, if they're trapped inside, I, I capture them and let them go. <laughs> but that is actually due to a psychedelic experience. I used to kill insects, and then I a trip like I don't know, ten or twelve years ago, where I had pretty severe arachnophobia. And on this trip, I saw a spider and was just enchanted by yeah. the web, the the evident intelligence of its architecting the web. And I was like, oh, these are just little consciousnesses. I can't kill them. I have to protect them. Yeah. As you like eat a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> right. Hey, please don't call it my hypocrisy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure pigs can, like, pigs can like do long division. <laughs> right. <laughs> I insist on saving mosquitoes, which kill more humans than any other animal through, through viruses. <laughs> misguided priorities uh so 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 oh yeah you were saying with clara like as part of the inquiry like do i want kids it wasn't so much that though it's been more like do i want to be in this relationship and also let's look at the context first of all it's an open relationship so being with her doesn't restrict my being with other people second of all it's a fucking pandemic the way i meet Every woman I've met, almost every woman I've met in recent years, including Clara, was by performing live. So that my, my channel for meeting women is entirely closed off. So that's also so like why why would I even question if I want to be with her? But that question was there and alive. And on family vacation a couple of weeks ago, uh, I texted her and asked her if she wanted to do a rectangle, which as you know, rectangle is what we call video chats that we do together. Cause you know, our phones are these little rectangular screens. It's rectangle, Clara talking to rectangle Adam. And I texted her around noon and as of like midnight, she hadn't responded, which had never happened before. Not that we always respond to each other's texts immediately, but if there's a specific request, something that, you know, necessitates a response. And I was and I became concerned. I thought one of a few things that happened, I thought either she's really, really depressed, but even when she's depressed, she'll still get back to me. So I actually thought the most likely thing was that she'd lost or broken her phone. But I was also slightly concerned, you know, she's, she's at that point, she had just moved to LA. I don't know, maybe something happened. So I texted around midnight saying, you know, Hey, just want to make sure you're okay. And she responded immediately like, oh yeah, I'm fine. Like not, not even apologizing like, oh yeah, I'm fine. You know, can we talk, she's, can we talk like in five days from now? And it was just super surprising to me that she hadn't responded, that she didn't acknowledge the unusualness of not responding. And that whereas before she'd seemed eager to talk to me pretty much as often as I wanted to talk to her. Now she's suggesting we put it off for a while. And it hit me kind of hard. It felt to me like, wow, something has changed here is what it felt to me. Mm-hmm. I had yeah, a deep that sense that something had changed. Yeah. 
But there was also a little sense of maybe not quite relief, but like maybe not far off from relief. Like I wasn't, I wasn't too, I was a little bit disturbed by it because it was like, I don't know where she's at, but also I wasn't, the possibility that something had changed was not inherently that threatening to me. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it felt like, for me, sometimes the feeling that's come at the end of a relationship is like stepping off of a roller coaster that was intense and scary and i knew i needed to stick it out until the logical conclusion of the ride mm-hmm. um because you can't get off a roller coaster too soon but when it's done and the gates open you're like oh okay i'm in the safety of aloneness again yeah and and maybe that was part of it and part of it also she was originally going to come on family vacation oh which is yeah a big step i haven't had a woman come on family vacation with me for over a decade wow uh, actually like 15 years. So she was going to come maybe not quite that long, but it's been a long time. So she was going to come. And then on that mushroom trip, I actually felt like, I don't know if I want her to come. And then as it turned out, she ultimately felt like it was going to be too much. She was moving to LA. So I think part of it was also, I was really, really enjoying family vacation and feeling peaceful and just really appreciating my family and just, yeah, introducing this element of even if it was just a phone call with her. I mean, I had suggested the rectangle because I did want to connect with her, yeah. but yet, yeah, there was some ambivalence with her, her odd response. Yeah. I could so, see how that would feel like a real, a, a real change from where things had been. And this has happened did. before. It, this has happened before with her. And this has been a, con, a concern in the past that, um, the shifting of the winds can feel abrupt. Yes. And that's what this felt like. And so I thought about it and it was like, well, there's only two explanations I can think of. Either she forgot to reply to me or she didn't want to reply to me. And I don't know which of those is actually better. (laughs) It just, it seems to, it seems to augur like a real change. I just couldn't imagine. And I, I, I can, the fact that it didn't even occur to me that she hadn't responded because she didn't want her or she'd forgotten, I think tells you where my mind was at in the relationship, that our relationship for all the questions around it, clearly when one of us texts the other, we respond. Mm-hmm. If it's a text that asks for a response. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow, I guess she just doesn't value. It it, so it did hurt me in that way. And it did set off some mental spinning, trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. But where I wound up ultimately was, okay, I have increasing ambivalence about this relationship too. And really the only decision is, do I want to continue this relationship? And the conclusion I made to that question was, I want to continue seeing her and let's see what happens. Like, I don't want to not see her again. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, so she had suggested we could talk in about a week, but then that day didn't work for me. And so we didn't wind up talking until uh, until three days ago. Mm-hmm. And immediately, as soon as we started talking, as soon as she appeared on my rectangle, it just, it felt bad. It felt like she was maybe not a stranger, but she it was like cold and there was no warmth coming from her whatsoever. Mm-hmm. There was no sense of, we've talked about this before. So she does have, you know, the mild form of bipolar. 
Mm-hmm. And it particularly correlates with her menstrual cycle. She has premenstrual dysphoric disorder, but can also operate independently of that. So she can often be in some very dark moods and she can also be in these incredibly effusive moods, but I'd never, so I'm used to her moods, you know, shifting to some extent, but I'd never had a rectangle with her before, especially we hadn't talked in a couple of weeks where she hadn't at, immediately expressed like, I miss you. It's nice to see you. It just didn't seem like she was happy to be talking to me hmm. at all. And what did that feel like for you? So I started feeling this kind of, despite my enlightened state now, I felt <laughs> triggered in the way I'd been triggered before with this sort of insecure attachment thing. And, but I kind of played it off. I was, you know, we just caught up a little bit. I told her what had been going on because we hadn't talked in a few weeks. And then there was a moment of silence and we're looking at each other and I'm like, is she going to even say anything about what happened with the not responding to the text or, cause I knew I didn't want to interrogate her. I didn't want to prosecute her, but I felt like, yeah, I wanted to explore what had happened and this feeling yeah. of, and so after a few moments of silence, I said, you know, it, it feels like something feels very different right now. And she said, well, you know, I'm in a black hole. That's what she calls these moods. And so it's, you know, it's just hard talking. And I said, okay, all right. If, if that's all it is, that's totally fine. But it does feel to me with this and the, and also what happened last time we were texting that maybe it's not just that. And she said, well, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this aunt is going crazy. Hey buddy, you're (laughs) literally calling across my computer screen. All right. I don't want to send it to an early grave. I will not stand in judgment. No, no, I I don't want to, I want to rest. I'm going to rescue it and put it outside, but I just wanted to stop crawling across the screen. Marring your beautiful face (laughs) on my, on my screen. Um, So I said, yeah, you know, it seems like, so, right. So it seems like something shifted. And she said, well, she kind of played it off, but she said, well, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, how intense the last six months has been with you, but I really, I don't think I should talk about it now because I'm in this black hole state. And I've learned from the past when I'm in this state to not talk too much because I'll, I may say things that really aren't true. Uh And I was like, okay, but so it sounds like something has shifted then. And she's like, well, yeah, I guess it has. And at this point I started feeling very insecure. Yeah. And, and I was like, well, do you still want to be together? And she's like, yes. And (laughs) she's like, like, I don't want to talk about it. You're like, okay, okay. But we're going to talk about it. I was like, do you still want, and she's like, yes. And she smiled and she's like, yes, I still want to be together. Um, but you know, why don't we talk about it? She, I knew she was going to, she had a big acting job, um, the next day. So she's like, why don't we talk about this more in a few days? And I was like, okay. I mean, it doesn't feel great to me to be left hanging like this, but I, I understand fine. We'll talk in a few days. Yeah. And That's tough. Good for yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And so we got off that call and immediately I felt this strong, sensation of loss in <laughs> all right i'm just gonna let that i've never what is this ant doing i don't know maybe this is one of those you know those ants who they like they ingest uh a, a mushroom spore that then mm-hmm. call like commandeers makes them kind of zombies and they crawl up to all right Let's go on. We, I have a psychotic, possibly mushroom zombie ant <laughs> crawling in front of the screen as I'm trying to to render truth and art simultaneously. 
no. So, um, so got off the call with her and just, yeah, this, like this pulsating sense of loss at the center of my heart. And immediately I wanted to go into escape or avoidance mode. I wanted to eat something. I wanted to masturbate. I wanted to watch TV, but I was like, no, let me, you let can me do really go into this feeling time, you know, <laughs> if you're talented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so instead I just went into meditation and just know. really opened up to the feeling and just really felt it really, really felt it for, you know, mm. 30, 40 minutes Wow! and did a little writing and went to sleep and I didn't sleep well that night. I kept waking up with this, you know, just this sense, this sensation of my heart of loss. This and this is while heartache. you're on the East coast, you're with your family. I'm on the East coast. Point. This was a few days ago. This was this three was days ago. Yeah. So you get bonus points for, um, in my mind, you get bonus points for being able to like summon these mature coping spiritual guy resources right. when you are in the midst of the regression Olympics. Right. Well, and I was worried about this because it has, we haven't talked about interacting with my parents, but it has taken some resources to bring patience and love to bear on this relationship where there's so much history of, of me acting not with patience and love. And I was worried that now in this state of 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 sadness and 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 anxiety about this relationship will i be able to show up that way to them with them but i i, I was able to and so the next day i i was kind of like yeah just feeling this loss but then also and it felt like in my heart like it was over but i was like yeah you're just jumping to conclusions you know really you you need to try not to think about it try to let go of trying to figure out until you have this next conversation and you'll see what happens. And then a few hours later, the next day, she sent me a message saying, Hey, actually, could you talk tonight? Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I think it's better if she emails me whatever she's going to tell me. Mm. I'd had this thought before where, so a real pattern in this relationship, and I mentioned this at the beginning of this episode, when Clara would, would tell me, Basically, when she breaks what would feel like bad news to me, like I'm going to start reuniting with Rob or I can't spend as much time with you or, you know, I don't want to something that that would trigger this sort of insecurity in me. And there'd be a very strong reaction. But then if I sat with it for a few hours or a day, I'd realize, oh, it's fine. Yeah. So I, I'd realized I would ha had the thought previous to this that, well, maybe a solution to this, practically speaking, is when she has to break, quote unquote, bad news to me. Don't do it in person. Don't do it on, on a video call. Send me an email so that then I can digest the news first so that when I respond, I'm not responding from this place of feeling hurt and, and insecure. I think there's a lot to that. I also, when I have to convey something difficult, I find it easier to have time to sit with my own writing rather than stumble through it in person. So when you want to dump me as a podcast host, you'll, it'll, it'll be via email, you're saying? <laughs> Uh, direct message on Instagram. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do I follow you? Uh, <laughs> You're one of the 10. Uh, what is it? What is your handle? Jo Jordan Iper MD. 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 Yep. Um, um follow, follow him. I, this, I, you might've noticed me just futzing with my computer that in talking about this, what comes up is something we may have discussed before. You, you've probably heard of at some point is this concept that was developed by the uh, poet John Keats of negative capability. I don't know if we've discussed it or if we and have, I don't recall it. I'm re reading from the Wikipedia page on it. Negative capability was a first phrase first used by 
poet John Keats in 1817 to characterize the capacity of the greatest writers, particularly Shakespeare uh, and Adam Strauss, to prefer a vision of artistic beauty even when it leads them into intellectual confusion and uncertainty. Um, and uh, and he it was first um, articulated, I believe, in a letter to his brother. And when he referring to this, he said, I mean, negative capability. That is when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Um, Mm. And the concept was first introduced to me by a therapist, not my current therapist. um, But the first therapist I ever had uh, when I was in my 20s and in a long term relationship that was driving me nuts. with my obsessive trying to figure out what was going to happen and what did this mean that, and should we stay together forever, et cetera. And, uh, he read that passage to me and I found it so helpful to think about that as that. That's like a goal, a developmental goal to really be sought Mm. after and, and striven for this capacity to just sit with uncertainty and not knowing. Yeah. And often my reaction to uncertainty has been to try to pin something down in. Well, so I, this is probably why you mentioned it. So, right. The, the, sorry, I'm a step behind you, but so, right. That next day, which was just two days ago, after we had that conversation, I found myself wanting to go to a, a, the worst case scenario, because at least there's certainty there. The worst case scenario being that, oh, it's over. Totally. Yeah, rather than sitting with the, well, I don't know what's happening, and I'm not going to know until I talk to her again. So when she did reach out the next day, I just said, you know, why don't why don't you send an email? Because as we both know, I tend to have a strong initial negative reaction to to these sort of conversations. But once I sit with it, it's often very different for me. So she sent me that email late that night, and I woke up the next morning. And I chose not to read it. Speaking of negative capability, wow. I was like, you know, I don't want to read this right now because I actually have a, f- a fun day planned. I was working on this writing project. It was beautiful out. I was going to be hanging out with my family. And I was like, I don't want, yeah, I, I, I don't want this to enter into my consciousness right now. And very impressive. Oh, I should, I, sh- I should say this. I did wake up that morning, that second morning, um, with with still with some feeling of loss but less loss and then i got that email i was like yeah i'm just i I feel good today i don't want i don't want my day to be about this right now i'll read it tonight part of that also was i was going to be with my family and i knew it would be difficult if i was holding any sort of painful news or anxiety or indecision to be present with them that's amazing yeah i really i'm I'm genuinely impressed as i as i said a few minutes ago like one of the things i'm most enjoying about recording this today is i'm reminded of it feels i mean this is a big part of like the 12-step process that's meant so much to you is sort of accountability um and we haven't had uh we haven't talked in a while and i feel like it's easier for me to remember that i you know the things i need to do to take care of myself when we're when when we're regularly having these conversations or i'm having these conversations with other people in my life because recently i've been in a like a I can't even wait 10, 10 minutes before I turn my phone off airplane mode and start sucking down uh, that sweet, sweet data into my eyeballs. 
in the morning when I, I wake up in the morning. I've been struggling with that too, generally. So it's not like I've just been unable to. I've been able to put aside my electronics addiction. I have at some to to some degree. This is a different, a, a bigger conversation that I'd love to have, but. But in this case, it was with the specific email from Clara sitting in my e- inbox. I saw the email. I took it. I moved it to a folder so I didn't ha- even have to see it sitting there. And I really just didn't think about it the rest of the day. It wasn't like it was niggling in the back of my mind. And I told myself, okay, nine o'clock that night, you know, my parents, when I'm done with the day with my family, I'll read the email. And I did read the email. And it seems like things are over. Wow. Yeah. It, I actually, I could even share the email with you. Um, you know what? Let's just, why don't I pull up? Let's, we can read some excerpts. Um, this could be a misguided idea, but <laughs> <laughs> I've been very public about this. Um, I, and also she has been okay. I, I'm not concerned that she, I'm not, I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, I put it in my Amtrak folder with all my Amtrak receipts because I didn't want to see it. Oh, you're such a boomer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to put it in my ARP folder, but I did not (laughs) want it to be buried with all of the early bird special offers I have there. So (laughs) my hip replacement surgery notifications. So Um, I'll just read the beginning. so I first want to say, I think you are wonderful, have been wonderful to me, and that I have immense feeling for you. That being said, I have realized that much of our relationship these past six months has given me a great deal of anxiety that I cannot dispel even after many successes in modifying our relationship to what is needed for me to be my best and most healthy self. Although there is so much good between us, being in this relationship is not a good choice for me right now. And I know that the best thing for me is to step away from it. And then she goes on. It, it feels strange and painful to say this. Um, I, yeah, I, I actually would read. It's not that long. I would read the whole thing, but I, I, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm violating any sort of confidentiality. So that's that's okay. You get the uh, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. It, yeah. So I got that email and immediately felt very strong sense of loss in my heart. Mm. And when I say my heart, I don't mean metaphorically. I mean the center of my chest. That area is where I feel, feel <laughs> these feelings. Not a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess what I mean is I, I always, always, you know, you hear people talk about, you know, what's in your heart, follow your heart. And for me, I never understood yeah. what that meant yeah. until psychedelics when I realized, oh, it's not a metaphor. It's, it's, it doesn't mean like a metaphor for sensitivity or emotion. I mean, it can mean that, but for me, when I talk about heart, I mean that area in my body. Yeah. We were talking earlier about, and just where, and I'll say this area that I had no access to before psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking earlier about how I I think it was when you were describing the sort of chaotic period when you were coming back, coming up on that trip, being able to um, like feel your consciousness located in your cranium. Yeah. And I feel similarly and um, yeah, unsurprisingly do also to my work with psychedelics. I uh, can sometimes feel a shift. Like if I'm, if, if like the engine is running so hot in my brain 
sometimes you can feel the seat of your awareness um, if if something happens or you're where you're able to shift it. You can like it's hard to describe. You can kind of feel your consciousness emanate more from uh, this place in the center of your chest and less from your think box up in your brain. Yeah. I think you described it perfectly. It's, it's, I mean, it's often spoken of in these mystical or, or esoteric terms, but for me, it's, it's pretty concrete. It's yeah. Is my attention on my physical head? Is my attention on or emanating from, I, for me, when I go into my body, it means one of two things. Generally, one is a general awareness of my entire torso. Mm Mm-hmm. If I'm sitting Zazen, it often also includes my limbs, but otherwise it's usually my torso. And the second is specifically my heart. So, and loss, sadness, love, those emotions seem to originate or be perceived in my heart area. Yeah. And that's what I felt after reading this email is this just heavy, intense sensation in my heart. And so I went into meditation and I just sat with it for for a while and just kind of felt sad. I thought I might cry, but I didn't cry. Um, I went to sleep that night and it woke me up a few times that night, this pulsating sensation, woke up the next morning, went to meditation. Oh, and I will say, even that night, I saw the first sort of, the first salvos of anger were being fired by my brain mm. was kind of like, Oh, she did something wrong or she shouldn't have done this, this, this looking for ways in which I was a victim or ways she, which she's wronged me, but I was letting those go. I wasn't engaging in them. So meditated the next morning, really, really feeling that loss, but also feeling that, okay, this is a gift. This whole relationship has been a profound gift. I've learned so much. I, I have grown more in the last six months than I've grown in years thanks to this relationship. I've seen things about myself, very humbling things, very unflattering things, ugly things that I never would have seen before. My whole picture of who I am uh, in relation to other people has been upended. And again, in a very humbling way, but in a way that's allowed a lot of growth. I, I've seen a lot of, I mean, ugliness is a judgmental term, but I've seen that I can be a lot less sympathetic than I thought I was, a lot less compassionate, a lot, lot less empathetic, a lot less sensitive, a lot less considerate. I've seen all these things and I've been able to, if not let them go entirely, um, shift with them. I, I've grown tremendously through this relationship. And mm-hmm. this morning, this was, this was fucking yesterday morning. Shit, this was yesterday morning when I woke up feeling this loss. I was like, okay, this is, this is also part of the teaching because one of the, I think the great harm I did myself when I had this very important relationship and 20 years ago with Annie that we've talked about or 15 years ago, and I developed OCD is I really cut myself off from my body and my emotions and emotions. We don't understand exactly what they are, but they're clearly, they're there for a reason. They're adaptive in some way. And I look at them as they, they bear information, they bear teaching, they bear wisdom, they're carrying that. And that if we refuse to experience our emotions, and of course, when I was heartbroken 20 years ago, I wasn't consciously refusing. I was just completely cut off from my body and spinning around in my head with anger and figuring out and obsessing. But if we're unable or unwilling to experience our emotions, we miss out on what I think more and more is probably the primary 
driver of growth, spiritual and and personal growth. I think more than intellectual awareness, I think emotions are are where it's at, at least for me, maybe because I was cut off for so long. And so even as I was feeling this real heartbreak yesterday morning, I was saying, and not just saying, really believing it, thank you. Mm. Thank you. This is a gift. This mm-hmm. is, I've learned so much from this relationship and now I get to learn more. And I learned from this feeling, not by figuring it out, not by putting words to this feeling, but just by being there with it and even loving it, nurturing it. Like it's this little, you know, this kind of, there, Stephen Ross, who pioneered this therapy called ACT that I used to do, acceptance mm-hmm. and commitment therapy, would talk about, you know, our feelings of, well, where else can this feeling go? You know, you, can't you give it shelter? It has nowhere else to go. Mm, it kind of like needs that. you in a way. Yeah. It's like a little kid. It needs you. It needs you to protect it and nurture it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's plenty of room in there for it. I mean, you uh, you brought up the the word spaciousness earlier. And in the wake of that psychedelic experience, it's, it sounds like you were feeling very spacious. And that is a, that's a concept that I find really meaningful. I think I most recently was reading a Pema Chodron book where she was talking about it. I was like, you don't need to do anything with the feeling. You don't need to fix it or um, yeah, heal it, transmute it into anything else. But what you can do is provide so much space around it that it's like a as pain, no matter how painful it is, it's a it's a drop in the ocean of your being. That's that's an interesting perspective. I look at it a little. Yes, it is a drop in the ocean of your be, being, but also I find and I found yesterday morning really allowing it to become my whole being, really mm, letting yeah. it fill me. Yeah. Just not only providing, not only allowing it to, but welcoming it because really seeing it as, as yeah, this, this feeling is a gift. And also knowing from bitter experience in the past, again, I developed OCD, I believe, because I wasn't willing to feel my feelings. And this relationship with Clara is the most significant relationship, I would say, since that relationship that caused the OCD 15 years ago. So I want to, the relationship didn't cause the OCD, obviously my, my inability to, to feel after it did, but yeah or avoidance yeah so no i appreciate that because the the process i just described could be you could use that as a defense right and i know she doesn't i'm so spacious that this doesn't hurt that much i'm so spacious when you have to even though you are and like you you especially when you're sort of connected to something outside of you you're connected to spirit you do have this vastness that can contain all you know all the waves and the tumult of your of your human experience um in the moment sometimes you got to let yourself feel like this is everything i'm going to totally fall apart and break down yeah yeah uh, right I, I, and i and i think well yeah well, when we allow ourselves to fully feel often we do experience more of that spaciousness where oh this thing that seemed like this horrible terrifying monster that's going to dominate me is just one aspect of my experience right now but i I was prepared for it to dominate my experience for a while i felt like i felt like all right i don't let me be clear i didn't want even though i was welcoming it there was a sense of it being aversive of something that I didn't, didn't quite want, you know, but, but being accepting of the fact that, yeah, this feels like a real loss. 
and it's going to be with me for a while. Well, at the same time, really, you know, be, being very clear with myself that my work is not to figure anything out right now. I don't have to figure out how am I going to respond to this email? What do I want? I just have to sit with this feeling because there is information here. And even if my brain, but it's not information that my brain has to parse out and put into language. I just have to sit with it. That's how I receive and grow from this information and this experience. Yeah. And I expected, you know, so of course it was hard not to project a bit into the future and be like, well, how long am I going to be feeling this way? And I felt like, all right, well, I'm probably going to, this is probably going to dominate for a few days or a week. Like this is probably going to be maybe not continuously present, but continually present. And then it'll start to taper off. And in a month, it probably won't be that strong. And, but after I did my morning meditation yesterday, and then I did some writing about this. Well, so the other thing is I was seeing these tendencies to try to, to blame. So after every morning I do meditate, I meditate for a while and then I go into prayer. And so my prayers yesterday morning were really praying to let go of any resentment towards her. I don't want to hold the slightest resentment. And I realize that includes this sort of insidious desire I can have to see her punished, mm -hmm. punished in the sense of she realizes the error of her ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to let go of all of that. But can you I don't accept want that when it arises? Yes. I mean, uh, are you like that? Does that, you know, yeah. Some, some I, vindictive petty thought comes into your head. Can you also be with that? I, for me, where I'm at now is I don't judge it. I don't try to white knuckle my way through it, but I will pray. I will pray yeah. for me. What prayer really is, you know, I don't pray to win the lottery or to get, you know, 10 more podcast listeners, thereby doubling our audience. Uh, <laughs> but I pray for things. Well, let's that not are, get ahead of ourselves. Right. <laughs> I pray for things that are theoretically within my control, but yet I can't seem to do them. So praying for willingness often is a thing. And so in this case, it feels like I should be able to not resent, but I, I feel like I need help for this. So, yeah, like so yeah, that. when that resentment comes up, I'd say it's not judging it, but it's not so much sitting with it either. It's not so much thinking about it or going into it or exploring it. It's more saying, ah, this is something I want to surrender because it's real powerful. Because here's the thing. It's super easy to be like, oh, I don't want to be resentful. I don't want to be angry. Yeah. But this is one of the reasons prayer, I think, is so powerful is if you're trying to, if you believe, if you have faith to some extent, it really forces you to be honest with yourself. Well, do I really, really want this? Because if I'm praying, I believe there's a chance this prayer can be answered. So, yeah, do I really, really want to let go of this resentment? And often the answer is no. But then as I sit with that no more, it can transform into a yes. And with Clara, the prayer yesterday morning was letting go of all that. And then in my journal writing yesterday, I realized I was looking for reasons, as I said earlier, or evidence that she had somehow wronged me, but really small things like, oh, she should have responded to that text, like not let me hang for two weeks. And then I was like, man, let's say she did make some mistakes. She's a fallible human being. And I'm sure I've made many, many mistakes too. So just let it all go. And I really got to a place, started getting there in prayer. And then when I was writing where I felt like I released all resentment and only wanted the best for her and felt like she'd done nothing wrong and felt like 
all right, this hurts. It's probably going to hurt for a while, but I'm not going to go to blame and anger and resentment because that's what I did with my ex 15 years ago. And that's what, mm-hmm. what sparked the OCD. I mean, I was so filled with rage against this woman 15 years ago, Annie, she did cheat on me, but I think the cheating almost just gave me a pretext to go into this rage because it was a lot more comfortable for me to be filled with rage than for me to feel the heartbreak of the loss of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to do that with Clara. And so I did my writing. I ate my late breakfast. And sometime after breakfast, I realized this feeling in my chest was gone, completely gone. Mm. And I was pretty shocked. I mean, it had been 12 hours since I got in this email and I was feeling no sadness, no loss. And it's now the next day and that feeling hasn't come back. And yeah, I feel actually a lot of peace and a lot of joy. Part of the joy is because I feel like, wow, I really feel very free to not have any resentment, any anger is such a departure from this pattern that's dominated me in past relationships. And I think part of the freedom is this sense that the relationship wasn't wasn't quite working for me. And I've given some thought as to why that was, and we can maybe talk about it on a subsequent episode. But what I've come down to is I think it's an odd thing because Clara is such an expressive, emotional person, but in a way, I feel like she never really let me love her. She was never totally vulnerable with me. And it, it's hard to justify this logically because she would tell me when she was depressed, she would, she would share her in, inner life and her thoughts. But more and more as I reflect back, there was a sense of some holding back on her part of her, some in some way not being vulnerable in a way that I wanted. I mean, you know, we were together for seven months. I never once, she never once let me comfort her. She only cried in front of me worse and what once she only cried in front of me once and, and she's, she's a crier by her own admission. So I, I don't know if that's all it yeah. is, but, and again, I'm not trying to figure it out now, but my overall sense is. I think there will be more feelings of loss in the future for sure. But right now I feel like, and I think I will respond to the email to this effect of, I think she's made the right decision for herself and probably for me too. And it feels to me in this moment, I mean, I haven't read the email. I've only read it three times, um, every hour on the hour. Uh, so I I haven't parsed it, but my sense is, you know, maybe there is some openness to, to the relationship continuing in a different form once we have some time apart. But my sense right now is that I don't know what feels good to me is really just being friends with her and not having a sexual or romantic component to the relationship at all. Mm -hmm. It just feels like there was some sense of her not being vulnerable or me not feeling totally safe because of some of the inconsistencies and I can't articulate it and I don't want to articulate it because I don't want to entirely figure it out. I don't want to fall into that figuring out thing, but it feels like this is a good outcome. Yeah. I'm sure I will feel heartbreak more in the future. I mean, yeah. And, and also the reality will, will, will start to, become more apparent where, oh yeah, it's a pandemic. I'm probably not going to meet someone else doing shows anytime uh, soon. Welcome. And welcome. Basic to the fucking world. horniness is a, is a big thing for yeah. me. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, soft pedal that, yeah. that 
So I think all of that single, it may not feel that easy, you know, but right now it feels like, yeah, I have, I have nothing but love for her. Nothing, nothing but appreciation, whatever quote unquote errors she made, she made because she's imperfect as am I, I don't think she ever behaved with anything other than, um, than good intentions towards me. And I, I think that's mutual. I think we both, we, we were caring and loving towards each other to the extent that we were able to be given who we are and given where we're at in our lives. Beautiful. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll keep tracking this and we'll have more time for postmortem. Sounds to me like a, like a very graceful dismount and anyone who's listening who thinks you are spiritually bypassing the anguish you're supposed to be feeling right now, um, well, then go fuck themselves because you're enlightened. Or, they're, they're, I mean, it's occurred to me, I'm like, is, is this just some sort of new avoidance strategy? And, you know, ultimately, I, I trust my body. I'm being very present with the sensations as yeah. they're arising. And so this sensation of loss... I do feel like it will arise in the future, but right now I, I look at it kind of like, oh, I really, it was like this little kid, right? Who really needed to, to tell me something. And instead of trying to lock it in the closet because I didn't want to hear it screaming and wailing, I sat down with it, gave it my full attention. It, it expressed what it needed to express. And now it's not, um, there's nothing more for me in that sensation right now. Yeah. Beautifully put. Well, great catching up, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for so filling I, me in. Congrats yeah. on getting dumped. <laughs> Congratulations on getting dumped. Well, I, I have so much to teach you about the exciting world of being single during <laughs> a global pandemic. Right. Boy, let me tell you, what you want to do is make sure you um, start scrolling on the dating apps within the first seven minutes of content <laughs> in the morning. If you if you have the impulse to meditate and journal before opening the dating app, you, you're going to want to resist that. Okay. All right. I appreciate the tip. <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for receiving and listening to all this. This has been a long one, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of ground to cover. And yeah. I do want to talk more about what you're going through. So maybe the next one can be a, uh, a, a, a little bit of a role reversal. Yeah, we keep saying that, but then I keep dancing away from... Well, let's do it next time. Vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, and I do want to hear more about um, and, and share more about mine because we have both spent um, time with our families of origin in the last in the last couple months and um as as has been alluded to that is rich territory for um for good data good regressions good childhood experience you know for those for those wounded yeah. children to come out of the closet and start making noise and asking for some attention and uh We'll, uh, we can compare notes on how we dealt with that. Yes, indeed. Well, I look forward to that. In the meantime, I am going to be a saint and rescue this ant. And, 
<laughs> well, love you, man. It's really, it's beautiful catching up with you. I've really missed uh, talking with you. Yeah, it feels really great. And like I, like I was saying, it, yeah, it, it's so much easier to um, try to walk a path of righteousness. <laughs> no, to try to, you know, to, to try to take care of yourself and keep talking to yourself in the ways that we know we need to talk to ourselves when when there's some accountability when you have someone that you're talking that you're having this sort of conversation with regularly so i love that yeah uh, i really appreciate sharing that with you all right well back to the regression olympics for me enjoy <laughs> enjoy pittsburgh and uh yeah i'll talk to you soon onward love you dude love you too bye